Welcome everybody again to retire.army where we talk about all things retirement and transition. Um, we get into some deeper topics about things that people are doing after they retire, the retirement process and things like that. And I'm welcoming today, Colonel Raymond Kimball retired, retired in September of 21. Um, so about a year, year and a half or so have been retired. Um, Raymond has been an instructor and assistant professor at Department of History at the USMA, West Point, New York from July 2005 to 2009. He was an operations officer at Cal Dole. Maybe we'll ask about that in a minute. And at the USMA, West Point, 2007-2009. Uh, um, executive assistant, senior director of European Affairs at the White House in DC from 2009 to 2011. Strategic Advisor, Commander's Initiative Group, International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan, 2011-2012. Director, Center of Junior Officers at the USMA in 2016 to 2020. And Chief of Faculty Learning, Innovation, Collaboration, and Research at the United States Military Academy, West Point, from 2018 to 2021. Currently, Raymond is used a decade of knowledge for creating game-based educational modules that challenge students to, to inhabit the identities of historical actors, better understanding the complex forces that drive decision-making and actions. 15 years of total experience creating formal and informal leader development programs that educate, train, and inspire diverse leaders of character. A meticulous editor who rapidly adapts to different house styles and author needs to deliver timely, readable material that meets all requirements. A proven leader in combat, academia, and business who builds and grows organizations that serve others. And we're definitely going to dive into that. But with all of that, uh, welcome to the show, Raymond. Glad to have you aboard. Thanks so much, John. I'm super excited to be here and get to talk with you. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you on. And uh, again, as I said before we started recording, uh, quick response, super quick response. So uh, I appreciate that a lot. It's really, uh, really helpful. Yeah. So let me just dive into my my random grab bag question. Uh, the first 30 to 60 minutes of your day compared now to when you were in uniform uh, in the military, what does that look like? Are there any differences or anything that sticks out? Yeah. So what's really interesting is that I get up at about the same time as I used to uh, on active duty. I, I found that, you know, 30 years in uniform kind of ingrained certain habits in you. And one is that like it or not, I'm now a morning person. Uh, so I'm up at, at six o'clock in the morning. Um, and really my first hour is what I call kind of my info dump and diagnostic. And what I mean by that is I go through my social media, I go through my email and just kind of get a sense of, all right, what happened overnight? What's going on? What, what are the different things that are potentially going to contend for my attention today? What are some things that I want to set aside for reading later on? Things like that. And that's the, that's the info dump piece of it. And then the diagnostic piece of it is I actually play a couple of games. I have a subscription to the New York Times crossword site. And part of that is not only the crossword itself, but also Wordle that I know is very well known uh, among a lot of folks. Uh, and they also have a tiles game that is much more abstract that's about kind of matching different figures. And so Wordle and tiles are, are my diagnostic uh, portion of the morning. I, that's how I get a sense of how well is my brain functioning today? Am I am I on it? Am I like just really getting after stuff? Or boy, am I 
really in a fog and just not clicking. And that really kind of drives how I approach the rest of my day. It doesn't necessarily give me an excuse to say, oh, I'm, I'm not going to do X because of this, but it may mean that I'm a little less ambitious in what I'm trying to get done in a given day or that I put more kind of scaffolds and guardrails in place and have other people looking at my stuff a little bit closer on, on days that I call bad brain days. Um, and that's, that's pretty similar to what I did in active duty. The diagnostic piece to be candid is, is new. It was something that just, I kind of stumbled on, uh, after I retired and I was doing these puzzles anyway, and I realized, Hey, this is actually kind of a really good indicator of how the day's going to go. Um, and so I've, I've been more intentional as a result uh, of making sure that I do those games and puzzles every morning without fail. I just, I, you know, to use an army term, it's part of my PMCS uh, of my brain uh, in the morning. That's really interesting. How did you actually stumble upon that? So uh, I have been a fan of the New York Times crossword forever. Um, I really enjoy it. Um, I really like the challenge of it. I love how it gets progressively more difficult over the course uh, of the week. So Mondays are super easy, Saturdays are super hard, and then Thursdays always have kind of a twist to it that you don't really know is going to be. And then, of course, Sunday is famous for just being super big and, and, and having a theme. Uh, and so I've always enjoyed the crossword, and, and because I was living in New York, I actually typically did them by hand. Uh, and then I, I, I want to say it was either 2019 or 2020, uh, for my birthday, my wife got me an online subscription to the crossword uh, so that I could do it every day as opposed to just on Sundays because we only got the Sunday paper. Uh, and so when I started doing it online, I discovered all of these other games that get packaged uh, online along with the New York Times crossword. And so it was a, again, it was a neat way to kind of expand my horizon and go just beyond word puzzles uh, and tackle things like images. And there's another neat one that has to do with kind of drawing lines to build pictures. And it sounds super boring, but it's actually a lot of fun and a neat kind of artistic outlet for people like me who generally aren't pretty artistic. Um, so, so yeah, it's been a nice kind of add to my life over the last couple of years. Yeah, it's interesting. I do, I do a, a lot of reading and research and stuff when I wake up. It seems like I can wake up straight into an analytical mindset and be able to get into a, like a deep conversation really quickly for some strange reason. So yeah. And that really does set the tone of my day. So that's, um, building in that daily habit of, of doing something that you enjoy for a few minutes, you know, before you get off to your day, that's a, it's a great way to start your day. Actually. I really, I applaud you for finding that. I'm glad you were able to, to discover that. And, and you know, the other interesting wrinkle is that I realized that I enjoy PT much more when I'm not doing it first thing in the morning, right? That's very much an army thing of, oh, PT, start off the day with PT and the rest of the day goes right. Well, I discovered after I retired that I actually don't mind going to the gym if I can do it at 10 o'clock or even, even 8 o'clock, right? As long as it's just not my first thing that I have to confront in the world when I get up in the morning, uh, I enjoy PT so much more. And so now... PT, I actually do more PT now that I'm retired than I did in the army because I can do it at a time of day that actually works for me and that I enjoy and I look forward to it. So that's my other kind of big change in my morning routine. Super interesting. Yeah. Um, let's let's tackle the, the flip side of that. So let's say that all of your responsibilities and obligations just suddenly like vanished and disappeared. 
Um, what kind of activities would you miss the most from that? And what kind of new things would you maybe try to bring into your, into your life or into your routine? So setting aside, you know, that presumably in this like family obligations would disappear. I would, I would be lost without my family, but, but I'm going to kind of set that aside and talk more about kind of uh, professional and, and personal obligations. I think the two things that I would miss the most uh, would be the teaching work that I still do. I adjunct uh, in the Teachers College for Arizona State University uh, and really enjoy that work and enjoy how it keeps me kind of grounded in what's happening in academe. Uh, and then I do a, a lot of volunteer work in the scouting movement uh, and, and helping scouts at multiple age levels uh, really live out the, the tenets of that program. And, and I would really miss that as well. Scouting has been a really powerful and important force in my life. Um, and so I'm going to be a little boring in my response and say, honestly, if those got wiped out of my, my life, I would probably feel really drawn to bring them back in. Um, frankly, similar to what I did after I retired, you know, I, I retired and teaching went out of my life because I retired and I decided I was missing it. And so I went ahead and brought it back in. And about a year after I retired, uh, we moved, we moved from New York state to Arizona. Uh, and so I left the scout troop that I'd been moving, that I'd been working with rather for, uh, seven years at that point, um, and promptly replaced it with a whole nother range of scouting responsibilities here in Arizona. Uh, so I, I, I feel like, and I'm probably jinxing myself by saying this, I feel like I've arrived at kind of a nice balance of activities in my life. And so I think if all of them went away, I would feel compelled to kind of bring them back in. I guess that, that kind of means that you've, you've found what you, you truly enjoy and what's really your passions in life. And that's kind of hard to find that, but you don't really realize it until you, until you miss it. Right. Well, and I've been trying to find it for, you know, going on 50 years now. So better late than never, I guess. Right. <laughs> Finally figured out what you wanted to be when you grew up. Ex exactly right. It's perfect. Um, so let's talk about your military um, journey and where it all started. Can you put us in a place in a time where you made the decision to join the military and what was maybe going on through your mind? Did you start out enlisted or did you go straight into as an officer? Uh, went straight in as an officer, uh, actually uh, reported into West Point about five days before my 18th birthday. With the right crowd, I will periodically joke that I'm a child soldier or a former child soldier. Um, you you got to be careful who you use that joke with. Not everybody finds it particularly funny for, for good reason. Um, but, uh, but what really drew me to the military was that I was an Army brat. Uh, I had the good fortune of being the child of dual military uh, parents. Both of my parents were Army Medical Corps. Uh, my father uh, was active duty. Uh, my mother was Army Reserve. Um, and I had some amazing opportunities in life as a result of growing up as a military brat. We were really fortunate in that we stayed put in one place for the majority of my father's career. He was stationed at Walter Reed, uh, the old Walter Reed Army Medical Center in downtown D.C. Uh, I was actually born there. Uh, so I'm one of those rare people who when they say, hey, I was born in D.C., the actual answer isn't somewhere in Maryland or Virginia. I was actually born in the district, and I'm very proud of that. Um, but we were, we were fortunate enough that we lived there for 12 years of my life, total of 16 years, um, because my father was able to just move from one assignment to another there at Walter Reed. And so 
we had some really amazing stability as far as a military family goes. And then he got offered command of what was at that time Landstuhl Army Regional Medical Center uh, in Germany. It was an army command at that time that has kind of changed and evolved over time. Um, but he got offered command of that and we moved to Germany in 1985. And I got to spend four years in Germany as a teenager in the late Cold War. Um, and being there at that point in time meant that I got to do an unbelievable amount of traveling and an unbelievable amount of broadening, not only all through Western Europe, but the East was starting to open up at that point as well. So I got to go to Russia or Soviet Union at that time. I got to go to East Germany. I got to go uh, to Hungary. I, you know, I got to see all of these places that even just a couple of years prior uh, had really been either off limits or very, very hard to get to. Um, and, and I definitely felt blessed as a result of that. Uh, and it, it, it grew me and it shaped me in ways that even now, 40 years later, I'm still only coming to appreciate. And so I really felt a desire to give back. I felt like I had had some amazing blessings, uh, in my life as a result of my parents' military service. Uh, and I, and I felt like it was important for me to give back. And so that's what that's what drove me to join. Um, and, and like so many people, you know, the reason I stayed is not the reason I joined, right? And I, and I think you find that with a lot of folks. For me, uh, you know, I, I joined out of that sense of obligation. And after a while, I felt like I had met that obligation, but I stayed because I was genuinely enjoying the work that I was doing and the people that I was getting to work with. And so that, you know, that evolved. Uh, over the course of my career. And as you got to the point where you were getting to retirement, um, were there anything anything that you noticed along the way during that retirement process? It could be the last two years. I generally like to say the last six months, but it could be the last year, last two years, depending on when you retired. Um, anything that you found along that path, mental hurdles, anything that was difficult to accomplish to get retirement finished hmm. or, or anything that was enjoyable along the way that really stuck out in your mind? You know, I, I really consider myself fortunate that I was able to take a very deliberate process to retirement, candidly, much more so than a, a lot of folks get the opportunity to do. And, and I'm certainly very fortunate uh, in that regard. Uh, 2017, 2018, uh, I was serving as the director for the Center for Junior Officers, uh, which is a small research center located at West Point that advocates for junior officer leader development and specifically for peer-to-peer -peer leader development in that context. And I, you know, I was looking ahead and I said, okay, we need to start the process to find my replacement. And so I kicked that process off in 2017. And by late 2018, uh, the Academy had selected who my successor was going to be. Uh, and that successor for a variety of reasons that, that I won't hash out here, was going to come in and replace me in September of 2020. And so at that point, uh, I really had the opportunity to sit and look and go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to hand this job off in September of 2020. What else do I want to accomplish with this career? What, what else do I want to do uh, at this point? And the more I thought about it and the more I kind of deliberated on it, uh, the more I said to myself, you know, I, I really feel like I've accomplished everything I wanted to do in this career. Uh, you know, I, I had a great troop command that I really enjoyed, had an amazing uh, set of educational experiences, had a great set of experiences as a strategist, 
uh, had gotten to teach for several years at West Point. And, and so I said, you know, if you're happy and if you've accomplished what you set out to do, that probably means it's time to walk away, right? Why, why force it? Why keep digging or why move the goalpost? We'd, let's let's walk away. Let's be satisfied with what we've done and and let's be let's be happy with that. Uh, and so I notified my boss and and we agreed that because of the because of the the timing of when the handover was going to be uh, with respect to the academic year and the fact that at that time I was doing another job as well, this uh, uh, chief of faculty development that you mentioned, um, we agreed that I would actually, after I handed off the CJO job, that I would still stick around as the chief of faculty development through the end of that academic year, basically taking me to summer of, of 2021. And, you know, that put me at 26 years. And I was like, hey, that I think that's pretty solid. Retire at 26 years. I, I think that's great. Um, and so I really do consider myself fortunate that I was able to kind of pick my exit. Right. I was able to pick and say, all right, this is the time that I want to do it and this is where I want to do it. And not everybody gets to do that. But I will tell you that to the greatest extent you can do that just by virtue of being satisfied with what you've accomplished. I think it makes the exit much easier and much smoother. That's actually a really unique way to get to retire. I actually have two two small follow on questions on that. Well, maybe small uh, one when you were setting things up for your successor to come in, um, was there a methodology or did you have some kind of format or framework that you used to do that? And then two, on the back end of that, and you can answer these separately or however you want to approach them. Did you always know what your like what you wanted to leave as your milestone as like your 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 brick in the wall saying, like, I've accomplished all this stuff. This is what I really wanted to leave in the world in my military service. So on the first question first, yeah, and it, it was really interesting in terms of handoff. I was exposed to, everybody talks about continuity book, right? Oh, the continuity book is super important. You got to put it together. Uh, and everybody tries to put one together. And, and more often than not, it just like sits on the shelf and gathers dust. Um, when I was doing a year deployment with Combined Joint Task Force Horn of Africa uh, in Djibouti, uh, which is fun to say, but not fun to visit, as I like to say about my year there, um, I was exposed to uh, using Microsoft OneNote uh, as a continuity book format. Uh, the knowledge management op officer there had put it together because HOA has just crazy turnover. Uh, I mean, so uh, the majority of the command is reserve component who tend to come on shorter tours. Uh, and because it's this crazy quilt of a joint task force, people come there on different intervals, right? Army folks are there for a year. Navy folks, maybe six to nine months. Air Force, anywhere from 90 to 120 days. Marines, eight, nine months. Uh, and then it even varies based on uh, on what your, your your duty description is. And, and so the command had this huge problem with knowledge loss. And so one of the things that the knowledge manager at the time put together was this idea of, of using OneNote. And if you're not familiar with it, it is an amazing tool for a continuity book because it allows you to preserve everything in its native format, right? You don't have to put everything in a PDF. You don't have to put everything in Word. You can create this OneNote document and it's it's tabbed like a binder, right? So it feels like you're looking at a binder, but you can dump your PowerPoint slide and you can dump your Excel spreadsheet and your Word doc. And, and all of it is captured there in its native format 
So instead of somebody having to recreate the wheel, they can just go back to your format. And I was like, that is brilliant. And I am totally stealing that and taking it with me. And so that was what I did actually for my, my two transitions. My first transition is handing off the director CJO position, uh, and then later handing off the chief of faculty development position. In both of those cases, I built that continuity book and you know generally tabbed it according to functions. It was a little different for, for each of them. But for both of them, the one thing that was really important to me was that the very first tab in both of them that was in there was people, right? It was, here's all the people that you're going to routinely interact with and their functions and what they do, and, and a little bit of side commentary too, right? The idea being that, hey, this continuity book is only for this other individual to see. It's not a public document. So here's some additional commentary on how I interacted with these people. Were they good interactions? Were they bad interactions? Um, so that that person, uh, that my successor had a sense of what was gonna be there. And then when we started the, the left seat, right seat ride, uh, process, and I'm probably dating myself by using that term, but I'm going to use it anyway. Um, when we started that handover process, the walkabout to meet people was the very first thing that we did in both of those jobs. Because again, to me, uh, it's all about the people, right? People first. And so if you go to meet those people, you get seen, hey, you're coming in, hey, I'm this new person. Yeah, you're not going to remember half the faces. Got it. All of us are terrible with names and faces, but you've at least been introduced as a known quantity. You've at least been introduced as, oh, okay, got it. You're not a complete surprise to me that you've suddenly shown up here. And then meeting those people then allows you to think in greater detail and greater context about, okay, these are the functions of the job. Well, none of those functions are in isolation, right? None of them are done on their own. They're all done interacting with other people. So having met those people first, it lets you think about those functions in a person-to-person -person context. I think that worked pretty well. I mean, you'd you'd have to, honestly, you'd have to ask my successors if it was worth a darn or not, but, but I think it worked pretty well. And in the moment, as we were doing the handoff, they seemed pretty pleased with that approach too. Yeah, it's actually the first time I've ever heard anybody formulate that into words and, and put it like that. And that's really super important. I mean, I've been deployed a couple of times and that's one thing that you don't generally get is you don't get that kind of face-to-face -face handoff. You get the, the, the phone number and the email, right? And then you email that person and you're like, hey, I'm the new blah, blah, blah. And I just wanted to reach out because I need to get this stuff from you. And they're like, who the delete? <laughs> so, who are you? <laughs> right. So yeah, putting a face to a name is uh, is highly important, especially in this day and age. It's uh, we're we're moving to a very digital, remote, nomadic kind of landscape, and uh, the more that's why I like this kind of interaction with yeah. video, even though there's audio that you can listen to as well. But uh, yeah, this is it, it's it totally makes sense, and that's really the first time I've ever heard anybody put that into words and actually put it in and implement it in real real time. Uh, and then, so the other question about the the legacy or the the brick in the wall. Thank you. I know I left something out. Yeah, in terms of legacy, so one, um, I wanted to, so I wanted to hand off organizations better than I found them. Right. I wanted whether that was in financial shape, whether that was organizationally, I, I, it was really important to me that I handed off the organization better than I found it. 
At the same time, it was really important to me that when I handed off organizations, that I handed them off with enough leeway um, and enough room to maneuver that my successors could really then take those organizations and lead them in the way that was best suited for them, right? I, I led organizations in a way that worked well with my personality, with my preferred way of organizing things, and I'm under no illusion that that is the best way or the only way. And so it was really important to me that in addition to handing off an organization better than it was, that I was not straight jagging my successors into, well, this is how you run things. This is how it has to be done. No, hey, look, here's the fundamentals of the organization. Here's the baseline, but you're a, you're a quality individual. Take it and run with it and shape it. And, and I'm actually really happy to say that both of those individuals did that, that both of those individuals within six months of assuming leadership of the two organizations, CJO and then Flickr, really made substantive changes that made them their own and, and candidly made them better. And they were changes that just temperamentally and organizationally, I never could have made. And so I'm, I'm really pleased that I left the organization to them in a way that they were able to immediately innovate uh, in a way that worked well for them. I love that approach to it. That's very, uh, very open-ended approach. It's, it's very similar to what you said about the smart continuity book, like it's an open-ended document and you can pretty much do any, it's a white canvas, right? Yeah. Nice. Um, let me switch gears a little bit and ask about Space A. So you've grown up in the military your whole life. Uh, you have any experience with Space A? We did. So we flew Space A a couple of times uh, when I was a kid. Uh, it was actually really useful. Uh, the couple of times we had to come back and forth uh, from Germany to the States. Um, regrettably, I have not really taken advantage of Space A either since being active duty uh, or being retired. I, I, I am really somebody who likes things scheduled and likes things planned. And so the relative kind of ambiguity and uncertainty that comes along with Space A uh, is just not something that works well with me. And part of it also, candidly, you know, I'm... I'm doing well enough. I, I'm very fortunate to have a robust retirement, uh, a wife who is now uh, Army retired as well. Um, and so, you know, we're fine flying commercial. And so let's let's leave that space for others who, who maybe don't have that kind of flexibility and that kind of mechanism. Yeah, funny enough, it's probably about 80% of the populace that I've, that I've interviewed so far have really kind of leaned more towards, yeah, I, I really need structure and I need to be certain that I'm going to get on a plane and get to my destination in the time that I want to get there and not spend 36 hours waiting for somebody to cancel a flight. So yeah, yeah it makes sense. It makes total sense. I'm it just, it's weird because I hear that response. And then on the other end of it, there's like thousands and thousands of questions about how space, they travel, how does it work? How do you sign up? How do you, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny dichotomy that's going on there. So I think I'll figure it out one of these days. Cool. So, so your wife just retired. She did. She um, she started transition leave in November of 22, and her last day uh, in the Army was January 31st, 2023. We could have made this the first couple's episode. What's going on? <laughs> uh, sorry, man. I let you down. Next time. Next time. We'll do a follow-on episode. We'll do the couple's episode. When you retired, did you have in mind or did you treat yourself to a specific retirement gift or did anybody else treat you to a specific retirement gift? 
So my planned retirement gift to myself, uh, I mentioned before that scouting plays a really important part in my life. And my planned retirement gift to myself was that I was going to participate in what's called the World Scout Moot. Um, and the World Scout Moot is this worldwide gamber, uh, gathering of older scouts. So older scouts being ages 18 to 25. Um, a lot of folks think of scouting as a, a youth program. And in the United States, it primarily is. Most scouting ends, uh, ends at 18. But there are scouting programs that go all the way to 21. And in the rest of the world, um, a lot of scouting programs go all the way to 25. And so a gathering of youth scouts is called a jamboree, and there are national jamborees and world jamborees, but a gathering of older scouts is called a moot. Um, and the World Scout moot, the, the latest iteration of it, uh, was supposed to take place in summer of 2021 uh, in Ireland. Um, and it was, and I, so I had signed up to be staff on it, basically the folks who kind of help things run behind the scenes. And it was going to be this amazing experience because they were going to live in a castle in the middle of the Irish countryside and like hike through the Irish countryside for seven days and then spend seven days at the castle doing activities there. And I was totally just like stoked and, and you know, ready for it and fired up. Um, well, then COVID hit and what was supposed to be in summer of 2021 got moved to summer 2022. And so I was like, okay, well, I can, it'll be a late retirement gift, but it'll still be my retirement gift and I'll do it. And then they, when, you know, Delta and Omicron continued to kind of snowball, uh, they finally had to cancel the moot. So, uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to look ahead to the next moot in 2025. I haven't heard announced where that, I think it's going to be in Poland, but I may be wrong about that. Um, but so I'm going to look ahead uh, and hopefully participate in that. And that will be my um, belated retirement gift. You know, as far as gifts from others, I, I was pretty clear to folks that I didn't want a lot of stuff for, uh, for retirement. Uh, you know, I've got a house full of stuff already that I knew I was going to have to move. Um, and more than anything, I just really appreciated the outreach from folks, some of whom, you know, I served with 20 plus years ago, uh, who reached out and just said, Hey, Thanks for being part of my life. Thanks for doing what you did. Thanks for being here. I, I really appreciate it. And that that was, I mean, you know, the awards and stuff were, were nice and they're hanging up on my wall. But um, more than anything, I just appreciated the outreach from folks who said, hey, this was what your career meant to my life. And that, that was really meaningful to me. Was there any one particular one of those moments or one of those interactions that kind of grabbed you by the by the heartstrings and started tugging really hard or they just all equally pretty much yeah boy i mean i would hate to sing i would hate to single out just one because then everybody else was like oh i guess i i wasn't as important Jeez. um I, I just every single one of them i know this is the all, i love all my kids equally response but every single piece of outreach was meaningful to me in its own way did you get a chance to experience uh, benefits delivery at discharge? And can you talk about that experience and how it went for you? I did. Again, I was really fortunate with my background. Part of what I, I did actually as a field grade officer for a couple of years was I was volunteering with Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and doing 
veterans outreach and veterans advocacy with them. And doing that for a couple of years really kind of gave me some insights into the VA process and, and how the, and the importance of it. And so I, I really had my ears pricked up then when I started the whole uh, transition assistance program uh, and heard about benefits delivery discharge. And so I was, I was really primed, I think, to accept that information and act on it in a way that not everybody always is. And so, you know, when they laid out all the BDD stuff for me, I was putting that stuff in my calendar. I was, all right, 179 days, man. I am scheduling that. Uh, uh, I'm scheduling that that uh, that set of physicals, and I'm putting my paper. I got to have my paperwork in by X date. Um, and I was super on top of it. I was super proud of myself. And then, and then, with a month to go before retirement, I pulled it up and was looking at it and realized that I had failed to upload my DD-214, right? The very last step, but the absolutely critical one that you must do or nothing else can happen. I realized with 20 days before my actual retirement date that I had not uploaded my DD-214. And so I scrambled and I got that in there. Uh, but as a result, I didn't actually like get the benefits kicking in until about a month after retirement. And that was entirely my own fault. And it was entirely because I had just failed to do that one upload. I just, I did, didn't think of it, just didn't occur to me. Um, so, so that's my, anytime I talk with, to folks, I tell them, Hey, do BDD. It's a, it, look, every process has its flaws. Not everybody may be happy with the outcome, but it works as advertised. If you meet their timelines, you will get the notifications when you were supposed to do as long as you remember to upload your DD-214. Were there any other hiccups that you experienced uh, in the BDD process other than the 214 debacle? Um, just a couple of it, you know, the, some of the some of the physicals that were scheduled. It felt like some of those were really repetitive um, and not necessarily not necessarily great value for what I'm sure the government was paying for them. Um, I, I was really grumpy that that VA had to spend money on a contractor for me to go out and get these physicals in. And some of them were remote. Some of them are like an hour and a half drive for me. Uh, and that's because of the unique aspects of the New York City area, right? That something can be something can be 50 miles away in New York City and easily be a two-hour drive, right? No matter what time of day you go. And that's just part of that kind of unique geography. But I was really grumpy as a taxpayer that I was like, hey, I'm going to do a perfectly good DOD physical. Why can't you assholes just take this DOD physical and run with that? Why are you paying this overblown contractor who's you know, making me wait an hour and then spending 15 minutes with me uh, to, to do this paperwork drill when there's a perfectly good DOD doc that's going to do the exact same thing and do it better? When you were, when you were getting prepared for retirement, and I don't know if you had this already on the, on the map beforehand, the 42 Ed Games, but when you were getting prepared for retirement, what were you mapping out for your future beyond the retirement date? Like, did you have things already set up in your mind or were you just kind of sketching them out or how did that look? Yeah. So this was a real challenge for me because like I said, I made the decision late 2018 that I was going to retire. Mark was on the wall of summer 2021. And so then I was like, okay, well, what next then? What am I, what am I going to do? 
and and I thought about a bunch of different options, right? GS job, I could have, you know, as a former strategist, I could have looked for a GS job going out and doing strategic planning. And that would have been interesting. Um, I could have done a, uh, a teaching job somewhere and that, you know, that full-time academic job, that would have been fun. But I really, and again, I was very fortunate that I was in a job that allowed me to do this, right? That gave that because I was the manager of my own schedule and the owner of my own schedule and, you know, had kind of the leeway to run my organization as I saw fit, I could build in the the white space for me to think really clearly and deeply about what what do I really want to do next? And as I thought about it, I said, what are the things that I really enjoy and get a charge out of? And as I kind of worked myself through that and talked with others and talked with my family and had some self-dialogue, it really dawned on me that there were two things. One, I loved the games-based learning stuff that I had routinely been doing in class for many years at that point. And I really enjoyed that method of learning, that method of teaching, and seeing the learning results that it got from students, which were phenomenal. Um, and then I also really enjoyed in my faculty development role, the idea of being a resource for others and helping others find what they needed and get what they needed done and, and get the resources that, that they needed to succeed. And so I was like, okay, I'm, I enjoy educational games and I enjoy helping other people. Is there a way to put these two things together? And as I started researching, you know, what I found was there's there's all kinds of folks out there that are supporting faculty development in some way, which is great. And, and they are great resources and, and I'm, I'm glad they're out there. And there are all kinds of educational game publishers out there. And again, they're amazing and I'm glad they're out there. But I didn't see anyone who was really filling a role of how do you help people get started with educational games? Because... For most folks, it's either you're a gamer or you're not, right? And and more specifically, you're someone who sees the value of educational games or you've never done it at all. And the gap between those two is enormous. And it can be really hard for somebody who's never really done gaming in the classroom, even if they want to pursue it, it can be really hard for them to find kind of the first steps that they want to take, right? How do I actually decide if something is a valid game for my classroom before I spend a crap ton of time on it? How do I convince my peers that this is intellectually rigorous and academically valid, right? And all of these are things that folks struggle with to different extent on, on educational games. And so I said, well, what if I could be that guy? What if I could be that guy that is out there as a service that somebody tells me what their learning objectives are, I go find a game for them, uh, I help shape that game in whatever way is necessary, and then I bring it back to them and put it in their hands, and then they can be off and running. Um, what if I could be that guy, right? And and oh, by the way, since I'm on military retirement, um, what if I could be that guy at a price point that actually fits in most faculty development budgets, as opposed to running in the tens of thousands of dollars to hundreds of thousands, which is what other service similar services offered by other organizations. And I'm I will, I'm not going to call anybody out by name because they have good reasons for charging what they do. And I'm not going to critique that. But, but, but because I'm only really seeking to make up the delta in my active duty salary, uh, I can offer it at a, why not offer it at a price point that 
actually matches what's in most folks' educational budgets. And so, uh, and, and so I really started to explore that. And, and one of the really great things about SFL TAP that I think, uh, sorry, Soldier for Life Transition Assistance Program that I think a lot of people don't appreciate is that it's more than just that five-day course, right? There are all kinds of follow-on options that you can take. And so because I had that kind of idea going into SFL TAP in February of 2020, you know, or January of 2020. So, you know, just before the, the, you know, the world came crashing in on everybody, I had the opportunity then to go do some of the SFL TAP follow-on stuff that is specifically oriented around building a business. So I got to two, I got to do the, the two day entrepreneurship track, um, which I think now has been kind of melded in, but at that time it was a separate two day track. I got to do that two day track. Uh, I got to do a VA SBA sponsored certificate program through Mississippi state that walks you through the building of your business plan from like blank sheet to no kidding business plan. And so at the end of that eight week course, uh, you know, and it was like three hours a week, it wasn't bad at all. Um, I had a no kidding professional business plan that I could then rely on as I was starting to pitch for grants and as I was starting to put together different mechanisms. And so again, I was incredibly fortunate that I had the opportunity and took the opportunity to take this kind of long-term deliberative approach. And, and so it's why I really encourage folks as much as possible, um, you know, we, we tell you to think three, five years out for your career, you need to do that for your transition as well, right? You need to, you need to be thinking about, okay, when is my good exit point and be realistic about what that looks like for you, as opposed to what your service says it should be. Right. You know what your service is. Oh, well, you should hang out for this job. Well, if you don't really want to do that job, don't do it. Yeah. Take that exit. Take that exit point before you go to that job so that you can exit on your terms instead of your services terms. Yeah, I'm actually still going through that process myself. I mean, of course, I'm doing my own things, but it's really I, I feel like it's one of those things. And correct me if I'm wrong. This is what I've gathered from a few people, but. When you when you transition out of the military, especially when you retire, when you transition, normally it's a little bit different because maybe you've got things set up or whatever, but or going to college afterwards or whatever. But when you transition as as a retiree, it's almost like you go, you sign the paperwork, and then they kind of kick you out the door, and they're like, "Have a nice day." And uh, it's really this drop off point. I've had a couple people mention to me over you know the, the course of the last two years of like. We do all these things for reintegration when you come back from deployments, right? Where you have your family and reintegration and you have all these different trainings for it. And I'm not saying, by all means, I'm not saying add additional training or mandatory training on top of things, but looking at it from that lens, when you think about the transition from active duty to retired or even reserved to retired, it's the same. I mean, idealistically, it's the same, right? You're going from one environment to a completely different environment. And uh, there's a lot of similarities. Absolutely. And, and, and the, the resources are there. They exist. Uh, but I think you're absolutely right. I think for retirees, we probably put less emphasis on it because the thinking is, well, you're a retiree and you, you know what you need, you, you know what you got to get. And, and so you'll, you'll go after it. And, and not everybody, not every retiree 
is in a position where they've been able to put in kind of the reflection time to know what they need. Some, some of them do need a more structured process that actually forces them, forces maybe a little strong term, that gives them the outlet and the opportunity, maybe is a better way of putting it, that gives them the option in a way that feels comfortable to them in a professional framework to set aside that time for reflection. So let's go off of that and kind of transition just slightly, and then we'll jump back on track. Um, this is a question I feel is really super important. And now knowing that you've worked so much with the scouts, boy scouts or cub scouts or whichever the BSA essentially, uh, in many, many hats that you've probably worn with the organizations that you've been a part of. If you had a chance to go back and have a conversation with your 16 year old self could be 17, could be 18. Could you place us in the context of like where you would meet your 16 year old self? what the circumstances might be and then what that conversation might look like. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like, I'm going to go back and give myself advice. I'm going to go back and tell myself to buy Apple stock, anything like that, but just what that conversation might look like and where it might be taking place. Yeah. 16 is actually perfect because it was the summer of my 16th birthday that we moved. My father retired from the army and we moved from Germany to Pennsylvania because that was where he got an amazing follow-on job. We were not Pennsylvania natives. We had never lived there. Um, it, it, was, it was a fantastic job offer. And, uh, and so that was it. We were going to Pennsylvania and that was that. And so I'm going into my junior year of high school. And, you know, at least in the military, when you move, you know that you're moving to a school with other military kids in kind of the general vicinity. And so... There's some, you know, some understanding of that. I was moving into a totally unknown quantity. I had no idea what to expect. I, we did, family didn't know anybody there. And, um, you know, outwardly, I was trying to be very calm and very presented. And inwardly, I was just freaking out. I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. This is going to be terrible. My last two years are going to be an utter disaster. Why am I leaving all my friends? Why am I leaving Germany? I love Germany. I don't want to go back to the United States. Um, and so 16 would actually be the perfect time for me to come talk to my younger self and say, and just say, I get it. I, I get that you're terrified and you have every reason to be terrified and it's, and it's going to be, and, and, and I understand it, but it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You're getting ready to meet some amazing friends that even though they were, you know, only in direct contact in your life for two years that you'll stay in touch with for 30 years after that. And you're going to get to live in a community that you really enjoy and that you're going to maintain your residency in for another 30 years after that. Uh, and oh, by the way, you're about four years out from meeting your future wife, and that's going to be amazing too. Um, so I get that you're terrified. I get that you're, you're, you're nervous. You have every right to be just take a deep breath, roll with it. And it's going to be okay. Excellent. And you did say you, you went straight into, uh, West point, like literally two years after that. Straight. Yeah. Straight out of high school. I had like, I think I had three weeks after high school graduation and then poof, peace barracks. Was, was there an, sorry to go down the, the rabbit hole, but was there was there a turning point in that period that you didn't get and go back and 
tell yourself any of that stuff? Was there a turning point in that period between 16 and 18 where you, where it just clicked and you were like, okay, I understand now I've got it. And it's, and it makes sense. I, I don't know that I would ever like put my finger on one particular point. Um, it, it just, things, things happened very quickly once we got stateside in early, I think it was early August of uh, 1989. Mm -hmm. um, and things just happened very, very quickly. Before I knew it, I was part of a sports team uh, that had great camaraderie and an amazing coach, uh, Bill Bartle, uh, my water polo coach, um, just one of the greatest human beings I've ever gotten to work with because he was very serious about the sport and he had high standards for the sport, but he also had very, very high standards for you as a human being. And, and he didn't, he didn't tolerate assholes and he didn't tolerate show offs. Uh, and, and he wanted everybody to know that they were a valued member of that team, no matter what their level of performance was. And that was exactly what I needed at that point in my life coming into that team. And then likewise, when school started, uh, I, I just ran, I just met people who were from day one. Uh, were very warm and welcoming. I was a novelty and that I was the new kid. Most folks there had been going to school uh, with each other for five, six, maybe even 10 years. Uh, and so I was kind of an outlier because I was like, oh, you're, you're new. Who are you? But, but, that it, but they didn't treat it as a bad thing. They was like, oh, cool, new people. Let's, let's meet the new guy. And so things just happened very quickly. And before I knew it, I was just enmeshed in this new community and off to the races yeah it's a, it's a really good time frame i really like that 16 year old 17 year old it's it's one of those pivotal moments in your life where you're halfway between childhood and adulthood and you're starting to make decisions and think long term and yeah uh, i think it's really important how do you feel about the role of mentors in business and can you point to any mentors that have deeply affected your life over the years I feel so strongly about mentoring that I wrote my doctoral dissertation on it and then proceeded to turn that into a book and then wrote another book after that. Uh, the Army Officer's Guide to Mentoring, the Army NCO's Guide to Mentoring, both kind of looking at mentoring practices in the Army and capturing it through people's actual words. So I feel very strongly about it. I think it's absolutely critical and, and boy, I could spend another two hours with you uh, just talking about the importance of mentoring. Um, two mentors that I really point out as being crucial in my life, uh, and I will try and keep these stories as brief as I can. Um, I, when I was, I, I was a young aviator, I was a senior, uh, I was a junior first lieutenant, actually, as I think about it. Um, I was wrapping up my time as a platoon leader and, you know, I was, uh, I was an aeroscout platoon leader flying the OH-58D Kyle Warriors. I was a steely-eyed killer, deliverer of ordnance downrange, and, and I knew my staff time was coming up, and I had great plans for what my staff time was going to be. I was going to be the intelligence officer and doing all kinds of, you know, dark side stuff, or I was going to be in the operations cell, and then, uh, uh, and then my boss told me, no, you're, you're going to be the S4. You're going to be the logistics officer. Mm. And I was like, uh, wait, steely-eyed killer. No, not, nope, you're going to be the S4. Go Go get them. And so there I was after 14 months of platoon time rolling up into uh, into the S4's office. And and I thought my career was over. I was like, oh, my God, I've been sidelined. I'm never going to be an operational pilot again. 
how quickly can I get out of here? How quickly can I move on? I, I was really coming into that job with just a shit attitude. Um, and the person who changed all that was Major Joe Blackburn, uh, who was my boss as the battalion executive officer, but was so much more than that. Um, and what Joe Blackburn showed me very quickly was there is so much more to this army thing than you understand. And you are in a position as the S4 to rapidly make a difference in people's lives. And, and that requires a lot of you, but it can have some really amazing outcomes. And within two months, he had totally changed my outlook on the S4 job. And then I stayed in touch with him for years after that. He, he actually moved out of that role as XO that summer. So I directly worked for him five months, maybe, probably more, even like four months, but very short time. Um, but he had an outsized impact on my life during those five months. And I stayed in touch with him for decades after that, um, getting his sense of different aspects of army aviation and, and was just so fortunate to have him in my life at that point. The other mentor who has made such a huge difference for me is Dr. Elizabeth Sherwood Randall, uh, former, so civilian, former uh, Clinton uh, DOD official, uh, deputy, uh, under or deputy assistant secretary of defense, sorry. Um, and then I actually got to work for her when I was in grad school. She needed a research assistant. I was looking for kind of an outlet for some research stuff. So, so I worked directly with her for a year and then stayed in touch with her as I moved from aviation branch to strategist. Uh, I was having some medical issues and the Army frowns upon its pilots getting dizzy in the cockpit. Who knew? Go figure. Um, and so I moved from aviation to, to the strategist functional area. Uh, and was fortunate enough when she went to the White House, to a White House job in the first Obama administration, uh, that she reached out and grabbed me as a by-name request, and I worked as her chief of staff uh, for two and a half years. And that, doing that job as what we would now call a broadening assignment, I'm, I'm, oh my God, did it broaden me. Holy cow, in so many ways. Got to see so many different aspects of foreign policy, of defense policy. Uh, that I had never appreciated. And we continue to remain in touch to this day, uh, 15 years, well, 20 years now after our initial meeting um, and my initial work for her. And I can just continue to learn so much from her example uh, and her work on a routine basis. If you could give a short speech to a group of transitioning military members, whether retirees or just transitioning after three or five or 10 years or whatever. And you had like TED talk time about 20 minutes to give this speech or kind of keynote maybe. Um, what would your thesis for the keynote be? And what are some of the things you might talk about during that? I think my thesis for the keynote would be, it may feel like it, but you're not the first one ever to go through this, right? And, and there's a couple different aspects of that. Sometimes, you know, you run into obstacles and you run into problems and, and you're literally thinking to yourself, I cannot be the first person who's ever had this problem. How is this an issue? How is this? And so remembering, yeah, I'm not the first person to go through this is a great reminder of, there's a way to do this. There's a way to fix this. The right answer is out there and I'm going to find it. So that's one aspect of you're not the first one to go through this. The second is 
you've probably been around enough that you know people who have gone through this and you need to have the humility to reach out to them and say, I'm scared shitless about this. Talk me down. Help me out with this. Because they've been there as well. They know how it feels. But they're not going to presume to know how you feel until you show that humility and you show that vulnerability um, uh, and, and, and really actively seek that out. And then the third uh, part of it, of you're not the first one to go through this, is you won't be the last one to go through this. People are going to come after you. You have, I, I'm not going to say obligation, okay, because obligation kind of, I think as a retiree, I absolutely have an obligation, right? I am still drawing the king's coin, to, uh, to use an antiquated term. I am, I am drawing a retiree pension, and that to me means I have an obligation to do things like this, frankly, that help illuminate the path for those who are going to come after me. So I feel like retirees, you absolutely have an obligation. For folks who are ETSing and who are potentially going to walk away from government service and never get another dime of government money, yeah, the term obligation may be a little a little too steep for them. But I would say that you have an for those folks, I would say you have an opportunity to smooth the path for those who come after you to make it easier and more accessible. And so take those opportunities where they come. So that that would be the pitch I think that I would give to transitioning folks. You're not the only one who's ever gone through this. Yeah, I like that. That's actually a good framework for life <laughs> in general. Yeah. Because uh, you get caught up and tripped up on your own insecurities and fears, and you don't realize that, like, oh, people have been doing this for thousands of years. You just weren't privy to seeing it firsthand. So, <laughs> um, can you name one to three books that have significantly influenced your life or your decisions? Um, it could be one, it could be three, it could be a handful. Um, but yeah, any any that have stood out over the years or stood yeah. as a time? I mean, it, it, look, as you can see from the shelf behind me, which is only a very kind of small part of my collection, I'm a, I'm a huge bookworm. So to some extent, the, the book that's having, that's had the most impact on me is the one I'm reading right now at any given time, right? Because I'm actively still sustaining that process of, of reading and taking it. But that's a really lame answer. And it is not at all in the spirit that you asked. So I'll, I'll, I'll cite two books that I think have been incredibly meaningful, uh, incredibly meaningful to me uh, in terms of, of how I view the world. Uh, the first is Good to Great uh, by Jim Collins, uh, business, business book that talks about, you know, the, the tagline is why some companies make the leap, at, you know, leap from good to great and others don't. Um, and it's actually kind of a little overblown as far as that, but but what good to great does is it really gives you a great framework to think of how do I build an organization that is going to succeed beyond me? And more importantly, how am I going to build an organization that isn't just all about my ego and my view of the world? And it is a phenomenal book for that. And I recommend that for anybody who is really interested in kind of a servant leadership perspective and building an organization from a servant leadership perspective, Good to Great is amazing. Um, the other book uh, that is super academic and super wonky is called How People Learn. 
It's a compilation of research that was published by the National Academies of Science in uh, 1999, and it was one of the first books that I read in my doctoral program on learning technologies. Uh, and I love how people learn because it lays out a very clear framework of, hey, here's the scholarly evidence that we have for how people learn, for cognitive aspects of it and social aspects of it. And it's all pulled together in one very accessible volume. And it's very clear about what we know or at, you know, what we knew at the time and what we didn't. Uh, there's a new volume that came out in 2016, uh, How People Learn Volume 2, that further expands on some areas that they you know admit were gray areas. Um, but it was really a model for me. One, it helped me look at stuff that I'd been doing in the classroom to that point and go, that's why that works, right? I knew that, you know, take your pick, uh, classroom polling or games or whatever. I knew stuff worked in the classroom, but I didn't know why it worked. And that was the first piece of research that ever I ever came upon that really laid out for me in an accessible framework hey, here's why this stuff is working. And that then energized me to dig into other areas of scholarly study on education and really get that get beyond that just kind of practitioner feel and get into the scholarly aspect of it. And that has really informed a lot of what I do ever since then of, of looking for that empirical, that qualitative and quantitative backing for best practices. Yeah, I've never heard of that book. I'm gonna have to look that one up for sure. It's it, it's obscure, right? If you're if you're in like an education doctorate program, you've probably run across it. But outside of that very narrow framework, yeah, almost nobody's ever heard of it. Just as a bonus question, what books book or books are you currently reading? So right now, I'm plowing my way through a book called Making History that talks about the history of history or historiography, if you prefer, um, as narrative. So getting beyond kind of just recitation of in 1066, there was blah, 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 but more talking about history as story arcs, right? And, and talking about how that's been a practice, you know, since Babylonian times, really. Um, and it's an enormous book, and I'm really, it's a slog to kind of get through it, but it's exceptionally well written. And I'm motivated to get through and finish it, because after I finish that, um, I'm going to read a book by one of my West Point classmates uh, called Rank Absurdity. Uh, which is basically a very, it, it's a memoir, all of it is true stuff, but it is a very kind of lighthearted and self-deprecating look um, at military service. And and I love this, Sean Smith, I love his, um, uh, I just love his sense of humor in general, and I'm really excited to be reading this book, but I do feel like I, I, I feel like I, I have to eat my veggies, right? I have to finish making history uh, before I can get to the dessert, which is going to be his book. Absolutely. If you could make a single LinkedIn post that you knew was going to reach uh, millions and millions of people and you only had two to three sentences to put it together, what would that post look like? Uh, it could be anything aside from like self-advertising or anything like that. But if you wanted to put out an important message that you feel is deeply, deeply important to you, um, what would that post look like? You know, I think I'd take it back to mentoring. Um, I think I would encourage folks and and boy two to three sentences really makes it challenging i think i would uh encourage folks to see themselves as both a mentor as both a potential mentor and a potential protege 
and decide which or both of those roles is best for them right now and then go after it. That's yeah, perfect. It matches the uh, the 30% rule or 33% rule, whichever it is. Spend 30% of your time with your peers, 30% with people who are ahead of you and 30% with people behind you. Yeah, yep. perfect. Agreed. I love it. Um, how do you feel about personal branding and do you, what have you done as far as personal branding in your space or do you, do you not, do you feel it's important or not? Boy, I, I struggle with it. I'm not going to lie. I, I, I absolutely think it's important and I am, I am in awe of people who do it well. Um, I really, I so much prefer to be kind of a behind the scenes guy, um, I, I tend to be very low profile. And as a result, I am just terrible at like shamelessly putting my name and my brand out there. I'm really, really bad at it. And it's, it's an area that I, I just, I have to figure out a way to get better at and have not cracked that code yet. Is there any thing specifically that you've struggled with with it or anything yeah, so the biggest, and this is this was something that I just struggled with as I was setting up a company in general, and I'm still wrestling with, is putting a price on my time, right? As as service members, everybody knows our salary, and that's already paid, and that's already going to happen. And so the idea that as a service member that your time, I mean, everybody understands that people's time is valuable. I'm not saying that, but... The idea that as a as a colonel that my hourly rate is X, nobody would ever nobody would ever say that, right? That's just not something that's part of military culture. Um, maybe it should be because maybe we would la- waste less time in meetings. I, I saw a, a meme somewhere that was like the next feature that needs to be in in Google Meetings is, hey, here's the dollar value of this meeting based on everybody's hourly rate. Uh, and should we actually be doing this meeting if it costs this much? And I think that's actually brilliant. Um, but because because there was never really an organizational emphasis in the military of my time is worth X dollar value, I still really struggle with pricing my time and saying, okay, you want me to do X, my hourly rate is going to be blah. Um, and I tend to just kind of default to one number and leave it at that. And I don't really kind of adjust it beyond there. Um, but boy, that was something that when I first started out um, and people were like, okay, well, what's your hourly rate? And I'm like, uh, what do you feel like it's worth? What do you pay other people? And man, that is the wrong, wrong, wrong answer. That is absolutely the wrong answer. You should be coming in. If you're in private business, you should be laying out your hourly rate and you should be confident and standing behind it, willing to adjust, okay, if the circumstances are right. But man, you should be laying out there as confident, hey, my hourly rate is $75 an hour and and here's why. If you were you know, looking at competitor X, they would charge you $120 an hour. And here's the thing, here's the experience that I have that they don't. And yeah, competitor Y is only going to charge you 50 bucks an hour, but you know, they won't offer this as part of that hourly service. So really, so to me, an important part of personal branding is knowing what your time is worth and standing behind it. I have gotten better at that aspect of it, but I still struggle 
with personal branding as a whole. Yeah, I do as well. I when people ask me for different things, different services, it's uh, it's tough, especially in my I'm freelancing a lot, uh, and I was doing it even before I got off of active duty, uh, just trying to get things set up for myself. And there, there's one particular book that may or may not be able to help. Well, one particular book, and then there's an equation that you can look up out there on the internet. It basically says figure out what your target goal is for an income for a year and then break that down into 52 weeks and blah, blah, blah. And then break it down into hours and base it off of like a 40 hour week. And you can do some adjustments here and there. Uh, but one book in particular uh, by Derek Sivers is called anything I want. And it's basically his story about how he built CD baby back in the nineties the before there was iTunes and any of that stuff and his kind of uh, philosophy on it. It's a very short read. I read it probably a couple times a year just to, just to bring back some inspiration. And he's a really inspirational guy either way, um, but might, might help out in that, in that aspect of it. That's a great tip. I'll add it to the stack. Yeah, yeah, totally. So let's move on to 42 Ed Games. Can you give me a quick synopsis of what 42 Ed Games is for those in the audience who don't know? And what have you been doing with it since you started it? Yeah, so what 42 Educational Games does is it connects educators primarily in the areas of higher education and corporate, but we also do some high school as well. Uh, but it, it connects educators with educational games that are a great fit for their learning spaces, right? So for the cost of what you typically pay for conference attendance, uh, I will get a sense of your educational context, but you know, figure out what your what your learning space is all about, who it's all about, what your institution is about. I will go out and find an existing game, so not make a new one. Finding an existing game that works for you, I'll make whatever tweaks are necessary so it runs perfectly in your learning space, and then I'll bring it back to you and I'll put it in your hands, and you can use it in perpetuity from that point on. Uh, as you see fit without any further kind of hassle or any further administrative work. Okay. And that's a, that's a, like a one-off fee or is that? So typically what I do is I'll, you know, I'll do an initial kind of assessment with a client and get a sense of what they're looking for. For most clients, it typically runs in about the 1500 to $2,000 range. Again, what most folks typically pay uh, for conference attendance. And, and I very deliberately pitch it in that range because I want this to be a service that is affordable to educators on the professional development budgets that they're given from their institutions rather than something that they have to pay out of pocket for. Because I do believe that educational games are something that improves an institution and improves a classroom. And so I want them to be able to use institutional funds for that in a way that is not burdensome for them or for the institution. Right. And it also cuts out the reoccurring costs that may happen with any other providers. That's exactly right. I don't want this to be, I don't want this to be a trap. Frankly, I don't want this to be something where they're continually having to shell, uh, shell out for it because the other part of it is educational context change, right? A, a great game that I deliver to somebody that is just working great for them for a year or two. And then suddenly their context may change and they're like, Oh, you know what? That's just not going to do it for me anymore. Great. Set it aside move on and there's no longer and there's no further residual costs from it you're not having to bear or your institution is not having to bear any additional financial burden uh just because your educational context changed because i know we've talked a ton about mentorship up to this point is there any any um 
like institutional kind of learning games that you've tested out in a mentorship capacity or in a group of mentors or mentees that you that you've had experience with that maybe was successful or maybe didn't work so well or yeah so one group that i have to mention that has been enormously influential and helpful to me in my journey in setting up 42 ed games uh, is the Reacting Consortium. Uh, this is a uh, this is an organization of institutions of higher education. It's headquartered out of Barnard College at Columbia University in New York City, um, and for twenty plus years they have been proponents for educational games and specifically for reacting games, which are educational role playing games that play out real historical collisions of ideas have students inhabit real historical roles to live out those collisions and use primary sources, so actual documents that existed at the time, uh, to have those arguments and play out those intellectual collisions. Uh, I started using reacting games uh, while I was teaching at West Point. I was blown away by how powerful and effective they were. And as I started standing up my company, uh, I was actually doing a lot of work with the Reacting Consortium, helping them edit and develop games there, which gave me a lot of the frameworks that I would then implement as business practices into my company. Uh, and I continue, I actually work for them right now as their micro game coordinator, spearheading a new initiative uh, to bring single session games uh, into the classroom, as well as some development editor work that I do with reacting authors of helping helping bring games along that are maybe stuck at a particular stage or that need a little extra nudging. And in that capacity, can you can you elaborate on the the editing? Because I'm completely unfamiliar with that, and I'm I'm not sure if anybody in the audience knows. But what what exactly is that, and what does that entail? Yeah, so there's really uh, two kinds of editing that that I've done professionally. One is just your classic kind of academic editing looking at reviewing articles, look, making sure they make sense, getting them out to reviewers and making sure that the reviewers uh, do that. Uh, I did that with uh, a book that I published uh, that I was part of an editorial team, uh, Teaching and Learning the West Point Way. We published it just before I retired. Uh, we were really proud of it. It's the first time that any book has kind of put together a collection of teaching best practices from across disciplines, so not just STEM, not just humanities, but all across disciplines from a service academy. And so we're very, we're very, very proud of that. And I've continued to do that kind of academic editing. I'm currently a managing editor for the British Journal for, British Journal for Military History, uh, which, as you as you would guess from the title, is based out of, out of the UK, but is doing a really great job of reaching out to authors who might otherwise be sidelined by academic publications and giving them a place to really kind of be that first publication, right? And get that first publication under their belt and, and get a sense of what this academic publishing world is all about. And so, and so I've done some editing on that in that regard. And so I've also helped clients who are working on articles for academic journals and just need some editing assistance need some pushback, uh, and, and I've really enjoyed doing that for, for a couple of clients. The other piece that I do that more directly ties to games-based learning is what's called development editing. And this is where I partner with an author who has an idea for a game and has some materials written, but can't kind of get things forward, right? Maybe they don't have the time, maybe they're stuck on an idea. And so I sit down with that author and get a sense of what their game is all about, what they're seeking to do. 
And then I just get to work on the game and kind of filling in the gaps and filling in the stuff that they haven't been able to do. Uh, and whatever we agree on, that's what I work on. And then at the end of the day, I deliver the game back to them and it's their game. And then they continue to bring it through the process. So for anybody out there who's familiar with like uh, drama or the theater, there's this, uh, there's this role called a dramaturg, which is somebody who works with uh, a, a, the author of a play, the author of a musical, and like helps with the things that that author is not particularly great at or is struggling with. You know, the musical, the play remains the author's, right? It still keeps that author's central vision. That dramaturg is just helping, helping that author get across the finish line. Well, a development editor performs a very similar function to a dramaturg uh, for games and for games and development. So much so that when I originally conceived of the idea, I was calling it gamaturg, um, which is great if you know what a dramaturg is, but it's totally incomprehensible uh, if you don't. And uh, one of my colleagues in the React Consortium pointed out to me, hey, hey, there's a title for that already. It's called a development editor. So why don't you just call yourself a development editor instead of making up a new term that nobody knows? I'm like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a really good idea. I'll do that. Thanks, Nick. And we were off to the races at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Because nobody wants to eat a, a Patagonian toothfish. They'd rather have sea bass. Bingo. <laughs> yep. Exactly right. Exactly right. That's awesome. Um, let me ask one kind of off the wall question, but it's, it's definitely in my question list here. Um, if you were given the opportunity, if somebody came up to you with some funding and said, Hey, look, I've got $10 million. I need to spend it on something that's really important to you. And it may or may not be your business better if it's not your business, but maybe something that is really deeply, that you're really deeply passionate about that maybe not everybody knows about yeah this 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 one's easy i would turn it around and i would plow it here into my local scouting council uh the grand canyon council um i, I think everybody is aware of the challenges that uh the boy scouts of america as an organization uh have had over the past couple of years the bankruptcy covid uh different national organizations choosing to separate from it and and i don't I don't think I need to belabor that point. Um, but as a result, I think there are a lot of people who have basically kind of written scouting off for debt and have basically said, well, okay, that that organization's in a death spiral and and it's never going to come out. And and I totally disagree with that characterization. I think scouting's best days are ahead of it. Um, I'm really excited about the fact that scouting is now a truly inclusive organization. Um, that we are welcoming to people regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of gender, uh, regardless of ability, that we are, we are truly trying to be the premier youth organization, uh, the, the premier experiential organization uh, for American youth. And specifically here in Arizona, the Grand Canyon Council is doing some really exciting things about rethinking how scouting is organized and delivered because scouting is still very much structured on an early 20th century model. The, the way scouting is delivered looks a lot like it was delivered in the 1920s and 1930s. And that tradition is great, but we live in a different world now. And, and one of the things that I'm really excited about is that Grand Canyon Council is really taking kind of a blank sheet approach um, and saying, okay, if we were creating scouting in 2023, what would it look like? 
because it wouldn't look like this. We, it would look like something totally different. And so uh, I would, I would absolutely, I would take that 10 million and I would plow it all into the council um, because it, I could already see that it would en enable the council to achieve some objectives that it's laid out for. Now, for the council officers who may be listening to this, I don't have $10 million. Please don't hit me up for it. Um, but if there is somebody out there who has $10 million and is interested in supporting scouting, the Grand Canyon Council is a great place to invest in. Were you, were you a scout growing up? I was. So I started out as a, so Tiger Cubs had just started, I think, um, when I got into Cub Scouting. So it, it, if, it had, if it wasn't the first year, it was definitely one of the first years. Um, and I went all the way through Cub Scouting, earned my arrow of light, went through uh, what was Boy Scouting at the time, now Scouts BSA. Uh, I earned my eagle, uh, was elected into the Order of the Arrow. Um, and, and really, Scouting opened a lot of doors for me. I am to this day convinced that being an Eagle Scout was what got me into West Point. It definitely was not my grades, which were, me you know, they weren't bad, but for, for West Point standards, they were mediocre. My grades would not get me into West Point today. The standards are, are definitely higher. Um, and it definitely wasn't my athletic ability, which again was pretty marginal. Um, but the fact that I was able to show leadership and character development by earning my eagle i am convinced to this day is what what got me into west point and um you know my son uh was a scout went all the way up through cub scouting earned his eagle as well also a member uh of, of the order of the arrow and when he went through some really difficult times in his life uh scouting was one of the few things that didn't have to change for him and was a um and was a source of strength for him uh, in a way that very few other things in his life were. Uh, and so I have always said that I owe a debt to scouting that I can never repay, um, but that I am going to continue to provide service in scouting uh, until my last breath because of that debt that I owe to scouting. Yeah. Yeah, I really applaud your uh, your determination in those things, especially when it comes to giving back. You've mentioned it already here with the after retirement, you you know, you owe a debt of gratitude. After scouting, you owe a debt of gratitude. I was a scout as well. I did not make it to Eagle, um, but I did make Order of the Arrow. But awesome. it, it was it was a fundamental shift in my life. And I and I've known many, many, many Eagle Scouts who've said something very similar, like that was one of the things that kind of leap that was the Archimedes lever to their, you know, career path or however it happened to fall on the ground. So yeah, I, I deeply appreciate the fact that you, that you're spending active time giving back, not only your time, but your effort, your resources, I'm sure. Uh, Cause scouting is not an easy thing to, to volunteer for. Like you, you have to give up a lot of things to do scouting activities, depending on where you are in the hierarchy. If you're, you know, a, a scout master or if you're one of the council members or something like that, like that's a lot of work. Yeah. It's a job in itself. <laughs> But, but, but it's worth it. Um, and and uh, you, you brought up something that I always like to, to kind of harp on, uh, if you'll allow me. Um, you, you mentioned you didn't make Eagle. Success in scouting is not making Eagle Scout. Uh, and and there, are, there are too many people out there that believe that. Oh, that, you know, if you didn't earn Eagle, you wasted your time in scouting. That's nonsense. Okay. Success in scouting is participating in scouting and growing as a result of it. And what that looks like is different 
for every single scout. There are some scouts out there that earn Eagle and still maybe necessarily didn't grow all that much in scouting or at least as much as, as we would like. And there are others that will never get past tenderfoot or second class, but who are profoundly transformed by scouting in ways that will positively impact others for generations to come. So, you know, for anybody listening who may be kind of on the fence about scouting and thinking about, oh, well, what success in scouting is growth through scouting. That's success. Everything else, Eagle Scout, Order of the Arrow, Silver Beaver, whatever, all of that is all that is icing on the cake. But mm-hmm. success in scouting is growth through scouting. I think that's all that I've got to cover. Uh, I don't know if we've missed anything or if there's anything that you want to touch on that we haven't touched on that maybe is important that you want to get out there or any any last kind of parting words or advice or anything you want to say out to the audience that we haven't really discussed. I think the last thing I would say, and it it, it kind of brings in a bunch of different aspects uh, of my life uh, that I've talked about to this point, is... You should be, when it comes to getting advice, when it comes to getting insights, um, when it comes to seeking out experiences, you should be routinely reaching out to people who don't look like you. Uh, And I cast that very broadly, right? Different gender, different ethnicity, different profession, different socioeconomic strata, um, different sexual orientation, right? You should be reaching out to people who don't look like you because by default, we tend to gravitate towards people who resemble us in, in many different ways. And there's, there's lots of research on this. I'll direct you to my book, uh, either of my mentoring guides, if you want to see the research on it. But, but the bottom line is we know that that's a tendency and it's something that we need to actively supplement by getting different perspectives if we're really going to grow as people. So that, that's the one thing that I'd put out there. No matter what aspect of your life, you should be pushing to make connections with people who aren't like you. That's a fantastic stopping point. Um, before we go, let me ask you where you would want to point people on the internet to come find you if they want to come looking for you or do some more research or find out about 42 Ed Games or anything like that. Yeah, so on the professional side, uh, my website is 42, the number 42edgames, sorry, 42ed.games. So it is, it's not a .com, .org, it's a .games extension. That is a thing for those of you who didn't know it. So 42ed.games. You can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, all as at 42edgames. Uh, on the mentoring side, if you want to learn more about my mentoring work, it's at Army Mentoring, so all one word, Army Mentoring, uh, on Twitter. Uh, and I definitely respond to folks and, and engage with folks there. Uh, and just reach out to me on any of those if you want to get in touch and let's talk. Perfect. I just want to thank you, Ray, for taking the time today. Um, it's been a blessing to have you on. I'm so glad that we, we crossed paths and uh, you've been a a very gracious guest with your time and with your expertise and with your knowledge. So thank you very much for coming on tonight. John, thanks for having me. And again, thanks for this venue. This is really exciting and I'm glad you're doing it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, trying to make it stick and make it, uh, make it work and see how, how, how far we get down that path. We'll see. You never know the outcome. The outcome is never guaranteed. Very true. With all that, 
Uh, I'd like to thank everybody else out in the audience as well uh, for listening in, tuning in, and uh, grueling through these long hour and a half, three-hour sessions. Uh, but I appreciate every single one of you out there who's uh, been a part of my, my journey and the journey of the others, the guests that I've had on. Um, anything you want to know about that we've spoken about in the podcast will be down in the show notes. And also, if you don't remember, there will be timestamps so you can skip around. You don't have to necessarily go from front to end so you can find what you're looking for and make it a little bit more contextual with uh, searching so you can find things out there on the internet faster. And with that, to everyone out there, um, have a great blessed day and thank you for being with us and we'll talk to you next time.